My good people, what is happening? What's going on? How was your Thanksgiving weekend? I'm sure everybody's full, but back to work and back for another week and also another episode of the J Reels Podcast. As I'm your host, J Reels. Welcome aboard for those listening for the very first time to what it is that I have to say about the world of sports. Thank you for taking the time to download and listen to this program and hopefully you can go back in the archives to listen to some of the others that I put out there. And for those who have been with me on this journey, now as I'm on episode 40, welcome back. Here on a Monday, November the 26th in the year of our Lord, 2018. And lots to discuss here. Coming from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J. Rose Podcast, of course, always comes correct, directed, in full effect. And lots to discuss here. We'll try to condense this in one hour. We have all the crazy college football scenario where Michigan just got destroyed there on Saturday. We had that wild seven-overtime game between Texas A&M and LSU. We'll get into that. The baseball stuff, which probably won't heat up for another week, but I got some thoughts on Manny Machado as far as him being a possibility for the Yankees. Please, there's your hint. And uh, also uh, some NBA stuff, which we'll get to. Knicks are blazing hot ever since David Fisdale's comments about it's not about the record which is crazy, but all that we'll get into. But, of course, we must start off with the football. And if you're a Giant fan, I know you had some visions of possible playoff hopes, in this case, NFC East hopes, division-wise, and you saw it go up in smoke down in Philadelphia yesterday afternoon. And I said it last week that after the two wins against San Francisco and Tampa, you cannot be serious about this team making any run until you get to 500. Well, they fell way short of that. And this team can still make it to 500, but they're going to have to win their last five games, which would start off this Sunday at home against a Bear team that's 8-3 and three and looking for some momentum as they head into a postseason. So if you're a Giant fan, you could put that to rest, put it to bed, forget about it. But when you look at yesterday's game, the two things that jump out at you, one, where's the head coach's head? as far as the players that he has on his team offensively and not being able to deploy them the way he did in the first half to the second half of this game, considering his team had a lead at the half. And it makes you wonder, when you look at some of these guys who are coordinators in the National Football League, whether it's the Wade Phillipses of the world, whether it's the Romeo Cronells of years past when he was with the Patriots and, of course, was able to parlay that into a position with the Cleveland Browns, and we know how that turned out. You know, a lot of these guys who are, North Turner is another guy, great offensive mind, cannot be a head coach. You wonder, with Pat Shermer, if this guy has what it takes to make it as an NFL head coach. And when you wake up this morning and you not only look at the record, but you look at how that second half unfolded down at the city of brotherly love, you say to yourself, I want him out of here. Well, we know that the management of the Giants, John Mara, etc., are not going to pull the plug after one season. But they have to be discouraged by what they saw yesterday because a team that was able to move a ball on a banged-up Philly secondary, they had guys that were literally off the street playing cornerback. I mean, it was a disgrace. You know, the Devontae Busbys of the world, and uh, who are these guys? And for the Giants to lay an egg the way they did in this game, you can't blame Eli. Although he had that interception right before the half, which could have been points there, certainly was a killer, but you can't put it on him. You wonder why this team went for two after their opening drive ended in a touchdown. To me, that didn't make any sense. 
This all falls at the hands and feet of Pat Shermer. That's number one. The second thing I want to talk about is, and he's right, there's no ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it, but we all know that Odell Beckham Jr. is going to be a lightning rod for the things that he says, and in this case, he was certainly dead on as far as why the offense and their game plan in the second half pretty much went up in smoke. I mean, when Saquon Barkley has four touches in a game where in the first half he completely dominated, it boggles the mind. You cannot have your talented players not be able to touch the ball in a game where I could see if you were trailing big and you're passing every down, and although Barkley, we all know he's very good as a pass catcher out of the backfield, but please, did you forget that he was on your team? For him not to get the ball, for him not to get any type of burn to either extend the lead or to try to kill clock or whatever it was. And as that was, it was just a disgrace. And I understand that a lot of people probably will side with Odo Beckham Jr. But the reason why this is going to be an attention-grabbing headline is because what does this mean for that coach and the relationship between Beckham and the head coach? We know all the comments that he said early on in the season, you know, that interview with Lil Wayne, and now a lot of people look at this or will look at this and say he's trying to kill the coach here. But the sad thing is that he's actually right. So props to him for saying that I guess we weren't part of the game plan. That's above my pay grade. You got to talk to him about it. And all Sherman does in the postgame is just say – Reference to Saquon Barkley, well, I need to give him a spell. A spell? The guy's a rookie player. He's got energy to burn. I'm not trying to say that you got to give the ball to him on every play, but that's your reasoning for not putting or not incorporating Barkley a lot more in the second half of this football game where you know that if you had any chance, any shot of creeping back into this division race, with Dallas winning, on Thanksgiving against the Redskins to make them tie for first place, and knowing that the Eagles beat you once in your building earlier this year, that you, by any means necessary, had to win this game. And that's your reasoning for not putting Barkley or not having him be that much more of a factor in the second half of this ball game. Uh, that's not for nothing to me. That's fireable right off the bat. I'd say, give me the card key, out you go. But I understand you can't do that. You can't dispose of these coaches as if it's yesterday's newspaper. You have to take this one season at a time, and unlike last year with the whole Ben McAdoo, Eli Manning, Geno Smith deal, where Ben McAdoo felt that he was going to be invincible and thought he was going to get away with it, and we saw how that unfolded. But now in this situation with Shermer, as much as the Giant fan will want to wake up and say, oh, we got to get him out of here, oh, this is a disgrace, you know, how are you going to leave this guy out of the game or not put him in the game or whatever it is, well, guess what? You just can't dispose of Shermer and then start looking for who your next guy is. But it goes back to what I said before. These hot coordinators, the guys who have been head coaches in the past, and it's not to say Shermer didn't deserve another shot. We get that he was in Cleveland. We understand what his record was. Didn't pan out. But with everything that he had done in Minnesota, especially with a guy like Case Keenum, who, let's face it, the guy was a borderline NFL starting quarterback two years ago, and now here he is on the precipice of 
going 500 with two big wins against the Chargers on the road and that home against the Steelers yesterday. So you're going to look at that and say, well, if we bring in a guy like Shermer, offensive mind, and we all know this is a league of offense, let's see what he could do. Well, 11 games in, I'm sure the hierarchy of the football giants, the leftovers from Thanksgiving certainly didn't go down well around 5 p.m. yesterday afternoon. And now all you're left with is five games, a season that has certainly been in shambles, to say the least. And if you had any glimmer, any sliver of hope yesterday, even as your team was leading 19-3 and leading at the half, it's for sure gone and a foregone conclusion that this uh, season is over. Now, we knew that this was the case when they were 1-7, and but now you could officially put a stamp on it because there is no way, shape, or form that this team is even coming remotely close to a shot of winning this division. I mean, think about this, people. They have not won a game in the division. So even if they ran the table, and if they're 8-8 eight and eight against the Cowboys or the Redskins, for that matter, they are not going to make a tiebreaker because they're two and four in the division. And right now, I don't have. Let's see if I can pull conference records up in front of me, or I should say division records. Let's see what we got. Cowboys. No, all I have is a conference records in front of me, but it's still there's no way there's no way that the Giants are going to win this division. And like I said, you have the Bears coming to town. And down the road, you got to play in Indy. And the Titans come. And the Titans, we all know, they're feisty defensively. It's a game that they can win and probably should win. But again, it's the Giants. We don't know. Shermer may ask Odell Beckham Jr. and also Saquon Barkley to take a vacation in the second half. And we'll see you next week. So the head coach, you can't trust. At this point, if you're a Giant fan, you can't trust him as far as what his game plan is. And when you think about it, as I said this weeks ago, before we move on to the Jets, he has all these offensive weapons in his arsenal. And he has been the type of coach, other than the last few weeks, it's almost as he's finally woken up from his early season malaise. But here he is with all these players, and we know who the players are, and all he does is, well, whatever the defense is going to give us, that's what we're going to take. And it seems like he got a lot of underneath stuff. Of course, they didn't run the ball as effectively as they did early on this, in the year, and we get that the offensive line has certainly been one of the focal points of this team since day one. But there have been times where you say to yourself, come on, we have all these guys on this offense that can certainly make plays, home run hitters, if you will, and all they've been able to do is is hit for singles and doubles. And now that you're finally getting the home runs, oh, okay, well, let's hold back a little bit because now we need to give a spell to this guy. Or you know what? I'm just going to scrap this game plan and go in this direction. I tell you, ever since that playoff game in Green Bay, and we know how that ended, the Giants have just been an abysmal failure. There's no other way to say it. And now you have... Five weeks left in the season. You don't know how this season's going to end up. You can't go, like I said, for the last couple of weeks, oh, we're going to lose to the Bears. We're going to win the game against Tennessee. Well, at Indy, we could probably lose, but I think we'll win in Washington. No, no, no. 
Can't look at it that way anymore. Just one game at a time. See where you end up at the end of the year. And if you happen to be in the top three or four, as far as draft is concerned, then you can start to look at that. But right now, Giant fans, you could forget about the season. And I'm sure a lot of them have forgot about it. But now, I don't care how optimistic you are. You could just say, rest in peace to the 2018 New York Giants as of today, November 26th, 2018. And as far as the Jets are concerned, it's pretty much the same deal as we know. I know Josh McCown, with all the reports leading up to this game, Sam Darnold was out of the boot. People thought that, hey, maybe he should play, considering given the experience against a Bill Belichick-led New England Patriot team. It'd be great for the kid. We did not see him. We did see Josh McCown. And for two and a half quarters, you thought to yourselves, maybe, just maybe, the Jets could hang in there and win a game against their hated rivals from up 95. But the two things you knew about the Jets and if there were any chance for them to win the game were pretty much the opening touchdown when they scored. And McCown, listen, he was a lot better than he was two weeks prior. But when you got a guy that's 39 years old and has been a journeyman backup, I mean, what can you really expect from that guy, especially when you're playing against a Patriot team who, let's face it, it's not your uncle's Patriot team of Teddy Bruschi, Richard Seymour, Asante Samuel, etc. But at the same time, you might as well have me at quarterback. No offense to Josh McCown. So now, at 7 nothing, what do the Patriots do? Right back down the field, touchdown, tie the game. It's almost like in baseball, when you had that 2 nothing lead in the first inning, you want to get a zero in the top of that second inning. And the Jets weren't able to do that. Same thing, even when they tied the game at 13, what happened on the next series? Touchdown. And that pretty much iced it. I'm sure as a Jet fan at that point, you thought to yourself, there's no way we're coming back from this. And rightfully so, that was the case. They hung tough. They played hard. But as we all know, no such thing as moral victories in any sport, but especially in the NFL. And now you're 3-8. and eight. You're wondering if Darnold will be ready to play this coming week. And the Jets, who they have this week? Tennessee, on the road. And all you could say right now is you're waiting for this season to end just as fast as if you are a Giant fan. But in this case, this whole coaching staff is walking the plank and is pretty much going to be put out the pasture until Black Monday, the day after the regular season, when Bulls and I'm sure the entire staff are going to be let go. And you only hope that this Jet team is competitive. And I'm sure that Bulls, he knows what's on the line. I'm sure he knows he's gone at the end of the year, but you'd only hope that he doesn't exacerbate it by having his players who have fought for him pretty much until this point. You know, by comments made by Jamal Adams and some of the other players on this team. You just only hope that they don't put up another stinker or two like they did right before the bye when they had the Bills come into town and just annihilate them. And that's... That's it with the Jets. I mean, what could you say? You hope Donald comes back and he's healthy. He can play out the rest of this year. Maybe pad some stats along the way. I'm sure that's it's going to be cosmetic. At the end of the day, nobody's going to really care or know that, hey, if he ends up with whatever he has, 20 touchdowns. I know he has about 14 interceptions. I don't even know if he's in double digits in touchdowns. 
maybe has 10 or 12, but hey, if you could somehow, some way, get him to 20 and 15, 16, it's not a great rookie season by any stretch, but you know, you'll take it. As long as you see the improvement from the quarterback, we get it that he, he, you know, he doesn't have any weapons on offense. And you just hope that the Jets somehow, some way, could just hang in there competitively to end the season on any sort of positive note. Because we know in the Tabo's era that has not been the case. As it is right now, the Jets made it to 500 and they've lost five in a row. That's on top of last year when they were 5-6 and six and they lost their last five games of the season to become 5-11. and 11. So that's what you're looking at, Jet fans. Sorry, I wish I had better news, but, and I hate to use cliches, but it is what it is. Now, as we go around the league, you had the three games on Thanksgiving. You had Mitchell Trubisky, who I would think will be back in the lineup this week. We'll see how that uh, unfolds. I know they have a big game against the Rams the week after this. We know that the Bears come to town against the Giants on Sunday. But as far as the Bears on Thanksgiving, it was a tooth and nail until Matthew Stafford showed up. And it's sad to say that here's a guy, and we all know Matthew Stafford, and I'm not trying to pick on him here, but let's face it. A guy was a number one overall pick and has had his moments in his league. Actually, due for 5,000 yards one year and has taken his teams to the playoffs a couple times. No victories, I might add. But here he was, Thanksgiving, game tied at 16. And what does he do? Pick six there, which iced the game. And the Bears go on and win 23 16. Bears are looking strong. We know how good they are defensively. And they have a very interesting schedule coming up, considering that they have the rest of the way Minnesota who they just played a couple weeks ago, as you know, or last week, in fact, Sunday night. They had the Packers coming into their building, which we'll get to in a minute. And they had the Rams coming to their building, uh, like I said, the week after this. So we'll certainly see what the Bears are truly made of here in the coming weeks. You would think that they're going to win a division, despite the Vikings winning last night against Green Bay. And remember, they already have the tiebreaker. Now, it's weird because the Vikings have that tie, so the tiebreakers doesn't really, you know, they don't really factor in that much. But still, you want to be able to get a leg on them in as far as sweeping them in the division. And the Bears right now are certainly in control of that. So the Bears with a big win there on Thanksgiving over the Lions. The Cowboys, you had plays to Amari Cooper left to right. They're actually trailing in this game against the Redskins. And Colt McCoy who is filling in for Alex Smith, as we know, with his horrific leg injury the week before. But it certainly wasn't enough. The Cowboys were pretty much in control right after the big plays there from Amari Cooper. He had those two long touchdowns. And then on top of that, sprinkle in a little Ezekiel Elliott as the Cowboys prevail and win 31-23. They actually hang on there in the end. But a good performance by them. They've actually won three in a row. Remember, they were 3-5 and five and it looked like their season was going to be out to sea, but they've certainly righted the ship, turned it around, and now here they are tied with the Redskins there in the NFC East and a huge game on Thursday night against the Saints who will come into their building winners of 10 straight. And, of course, the Thursday night game was the Falcons going down to the Big Easy and the Saints prevail there 31-17. Actually, at 24-10, where the Falcon season was certainly on the line. 
you had a big turnover, a pick that was tipped in the air, and that pretty much led to the touchdown that secured this game. Not that there was any reason or any doubt that they were going to lose this game, the Saints, but there was a moment there where the Falcons were driving there in the fourth quarter, and you think, wow, they could cut it to one score. In this league, you never know, even though I'm sure they probably would have gotten the ball, marched down the field, the Saints, that is, and punched it in the end zone. But the crazy thing about it is that the Saints, in all their touchdowns, were pretty much guys that you never even heard of. You know, Tommy Lee Lewis, and you know they had the tight end Arnold, and you had all these players that, when you look at it, you're thinking, all right, I'm sure Michael Thomas had his usual game, and Alvin Kamara, and uh, no, not even. You had a bunch of no-names scoring touchdowns, and just goes to show the type of depth and the role that the Saints are on this late in the season. Still plenty of games to be played, still plenty of time to go, but as of right now, they're looking like probably the best team in the league. Not only just because they won 10 in a row, but they're just beating up people left and right, leaving them in their wake. So the Saints cap off the Thanksgiving weekend or Thanksgiving day with the 31-17 win. And when we move on to Sunday, Jacksonville and Buffalo, we know that uh, Mr. Jalen Ramsey had to eat some crow as he shook Josh Allen's hand at the end of the game, calling him trash in that GQ article. Now, Josh Allen didn't really do much in the game. I mean, he only threw for 160 yards. I think it was, what, 9 for 17. But it was enough. As the Jaguars, now 3-8, and eight, talked about it last week, how they gave that game away to Pittsburgh, one-hit wonders and all that. So the Bills now at 4-7. and seven, As I uh, trim some fat here, what about the Bengals? I understand that Cleveland was probably rallying around knowing that Hugh Jackson is on their staff, the Bengals staff, that is. And what did they do? They... Jumped out to a 28-0 lead. They end up winning 35-20. The quarterback, Andy Dalton, had to leave the game due to a thumb injury, so they had the backup come in. And just an absolute disgraceful job by the Bengals. And who knows if Marvin Lewis is even – I mean, he's been there. He's the second-longest tenure coach in the NFL behind Belichick. But you would think that – what are the Browns going to do, the owners? They cannot have this continue, considering this team started off 4-1, and and it's just spiraled out of control ever since. And they actually have a huge game coming this Sunday if they have any life left with the Broncos coming in. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But just pathetic performance. And Cleveland certainly played very well. Baker Mayfield is certainly progressing as the weeks go on. And good for them. And right now they're 4-6-1, and one, and their over number is 6-and-a-half. I believe it's 6-and-a-half. Oh, no, it's 5-and-a-half. So I said there's no way they're going to get to 6 as it is right now, it looks like they may actually get to six. So we'll certainly keep an eye on that because that was one of my uh, over-under picks, which I'll probably dig out. Maybe next week I'll dig them out just to kind of recap on those. So that's what you have with the Bengals and Browns. San Francisco and Tampa, who cares? Tampa wins 27-9. to You have Oakland and Baltimore. Baltimore trying to stake their claim in the AFC as far as a wild card position is concerned. 34-17, Derek Carr not that good. Same for Lamar Jackson. And again, I understand this is a second start. What's going to be fascinating is, is that once Joe Flacco, and he possibly could come back this week when they go to Atlanta, what does that mean? Is it time for Lamar Jackson to give up a spot considering he did win two games as a starter? Both of the games are at home. But with Flacco, this is definitely going to be his last stand if he does come back this week. Uh, but Lamar Jackson certainly was able to do a lot with his legs, but we all know that doesn't last in the NFL. But with them trying to fight for a playoff spot, 
do you go back to the guy who has been the face of your franchise on the offensive side? Because remember, Ray Lewis was there early on as far as the face of the team. But now, very interesting decision by John Harbaugh. What is he going to do here? Is he going to bring him back? Uh, going up against a wounded and depleted Atlanta team. Uh, we'll see what happens there. The Chargers, after Phillip Rivers goes 25 for 25 to start the game, ends up 28 of 29. They were actually down 10 nothing to the Cardinals, but they blew them out 45-10. So the Chargers keep rolling as they have a big matchup come uh, Sunday against the Steelers. What about the Colts? They were down 24-14 in this game. You think of Miami? Eh, maybe they'll pull this one out. Colts are due to lose. Andrew Luck comes firing back. Eighth straight game with at least three touchdowns in a game. 27-24. Luck threw for 343. Uh, what could you say about him? And I mentioned this. They were 1-4. and four. And I said to myself that this team was going to be much improved. And when the season had started and how it was shaking out, I thought to myself, geez, how could I make this pick? But look at this. But And the only reason why I picked that is because I felt he was going to be healthy and that he was going to have a big year considering that he'd pretty much been on the shelf for the last two years. And just being back on an NFL field, playing again, that he was going to be spry, ready to go, certainly didn't start off that way. And I get it that it, they haven't beaten up, you know, they've been beating up the cell dwellers of the NFL. I understand Miami's a little bit better than the Raiders and, you know, some of the other teams that they played as they've put together this winning streak. But give it up to the Colts as they put themselves thrust right in the mix, not only just the AFC playoff picture, but also the AFC South. And. What's going on there? Now, remember, the Texans who have first place and a one-game lead or one-and-a-half right now because the Texans and Titans play tonight, Monday Night Football. But remember, they lost earlier this year to the Colts, that is, to the Texans, so they have a leg up right now as far as the tiebreaker and head-to-head is concerned. But the Colts, give them credit. Just an excellent job by them. Uh, Let's see, a couple of the games. Seattle and Carolina, which is a very interesting game. Seattle, and there was the, they were the team that I thought were going to be a disappointment. Kudos to not only the quarterback, Russell Wilson, who had a phenomenal game, 339 yards, and you would think at 27-20, with seven minutes to go, Carolina at home, that they would pull out this game. Certainly wasn't the case. Tough loss for Carolina. Remember, they were 6-2, and two, now they're 6-3, and three, and they're floundering there in the NFC. And we'll go through all the scenarios in a minute as far as what's happening and what's uh, taking place in both of the conferences. But this is just a bad loss for Carolina. Remember, they still have to play the Saints twice. And for those who may think that the last game of the season, because they play two of the final three weeks of the season. And for those that may think that, oh, the Saints are probably not going to need the game. Well, guess what? They're 10-1 and with the Rams. And if they continue to keep pace with one another, they're going to need to win that game to get home field advantage. Because the last thing they want to do is go on the road, even if it happens to be in the warm and I would think friendly confines of the LA Coliseum, but that game could absolutely mean something. So certainly keep your eye on that down the road. And if you're Carolina, boy, this is a game that's going to come back to haunt you. When you're up in the fourth quarter at home by a touchdown against a team that we know they're gutty, we know they're winners, especially when you got that quarterback in Russell Wilson who is has a heart of a lion, and he certainly showed that yesterday. So huge win by the Seahawks. And think about this. They have tiebreakers now because Carolina's not going to win a division, neither is Seattle. So that is an enormous game because both teams right now are 6-5. and five. And if the season were to end today, 
I believe Seattle would have that last playoff spot. As a matter of fact, they would not because of the Redskins and their tiebreaker because all those teams are bunched together. So Washington would get the advantage there if the season ended today. But tough loss there for Carolina. We'll see how they bounce back as next week. Let's see. Who do they have? They go to Tampa. So not going to be easy. I understand it's Tampa and people could say, oh, they should beat them easily. But division games on the road and any division game is certainly not easy. But on the road and now that they've lost three in a row, that's going to be a fascinating situation to see how the Panthers respond in the wake of these three games that they've lost and now have to go on the road to beat up a Tampa team that, although they won, but for all intents and purposes, they should beat if they have any aspirations of making the postseason. And finally, let's see, I got through all the games, Oakland, Baltimore. All right, let's get right to it. The Steeler game yesterday, pretty much what it boils down to are three plays. At 17-10, Steelers had the lead, and they're at midfield. I think Roethlisberger's pass was a little errant. It looked like Antonio Brown gave up on the route, so it could be a combination of both. I thought the pass was a little bit beyond and overthrown where... Chris Harris picks it off. Two plays later, they're in the end zone, so now you have the game tied at 17. The second big play was the James Conner fumble where late in the third quarter, there he is, he fumbles the ball as they're moving the ball, and the Steelers move the ball. I mean, Roethlisberger threw for over 400 yards, not much on the ground, but here here it was, a big spot where Conner was making up some, making a huge play, gaining tons of yards, and then he gets hit, tripped up, Ball goes flying in the air, gets recovered. And then what does that do? It turns that around to more points where they punch it in 24-17 early in the fourth quarter. And then the steal, that was play number two. And then, of course, the final play of the game, which was reminiscent of the game last year when New England was in Pittsburgh, which was pretty much for home field. And what did Roethlisberger do at second and goal? He just throws the ball. He does a run-pass option, fakes the run, and then he throws it. And not only did the defensive lineman intercept the ball, but even if the defensive lineman wasn't there, the defensive back was in front of Antonio Brown and would have been picked off. So to me, that was a dangerous play. And as they should have recalled from last year, and I get that last year's, not to compare that game to this one, it was a lot more chaotic then. But for them to make that play in the middle of the field, in the end zone at the two-yard line, they should have learned their lesson. And I get it that maybe Roethlisberger called that play or whatever it may be, but it was just a terrible play. The first play on the first goal was on a fade. All right, you want to try that? Fine. But to me, I thought they should have ran on first down. Would have kept them honest, and then you want to pass second down, pass third down, then away you go. Steelers did have one timeout left. So even if they would have ran the ball and got stuffed there, they certainly could have called a timeout and then obviously had taken it from there. But just terrible by Roethlisberger there. Actually, his fourth pick in the red zone this year, which is the most in the NFL. But it was a game that... Last year, last week, the football gods were shining on the Steelers as a game that they had no business winning. And this was a game that, I'm not going to say they had no business losing, but certainly they did give this game away with both hands. I mean, there's no other way to cut it. Just a pathetic sequence there, whether it was the pick there by Roethlisberger at 17-10, the Connor fumble. I understand it was a good hit, but then the ball went flying in the air. It was like Connor never played in the league before. And I get it, it happens, it's football. What are you going to do? But still, that was just a brutal fumble then. You know what that reminded me of too? Steeler fans, and I hate to bring up these bad memories, 
But at 13-12 in the divisional game against the Broncos, that was the year of Super Bowl 50 when they beat the Panthers. They're marching down the field and they have a shot to possibly go in the end zone and kick a field goal to be up, you know, at least by a touchdown and a two-point conversion or at least one score, meaning that they had to score a touchdown because a field goal would have made it 16-12. And then Fitzgerald Toussaint fumbled the ball there as they're marching down the field. And then what did Peyton Manning do? Went the other way, touchdown, that was pretty much the game. So that's what that reminded me of. So Steelers, listen, they had one six in a row. They were due to lose one of these games. That was a, that was a tough loss. That was a tough loss because they certainly beat themselves. And give it credit to Denver. I mean, De- Denver did a phenomenal job. They certainly executed. Case Keenum is not a sexy quarterback, but you know what? He's gutty. He stands in there. He makes plays, and you got to give him credit. And their defense, I will say this, Denver's defense, everybody talks about the pass, rusher, pass rushers, but they were physical. Now look at the play, Xavier Grimble. As he, I mean, he could have walked into the end zone. He gets popped at the, literally at the half-yard line, about to go into the end zone. Ball goes out of bounds. It's a touchback. And listen, I understand Grimble is, you know, he's a third tight end on your team, but come on, guy, you got to get that ball in the end zone. You know, or run to the pylon to make a dive. You know, it was almost like he was engaging or he was waiting for the contact or wanted to, I don't know if it was a testosterone thing, but he got slammed on that and the ball goes out of bounds and a touchback, which is six points. And that's after they missed a field goal early on. Now, granted, they made up for it on the fake field goal, which was genius by Tomlin. And I get it. That's a play where if it fails, Tomlin's going to look like an idiot. But that was a great play. I mean, there's no way to cut it. They didn't want to go into the locker room 10-6. Touchdown. They had the momentum. Remember, they scored a touchdown, the 97-yard on Juju Smith-Schuster, which was a phenomenal play, both by Roethlisberger and Schuster. But it wasn't to be yesterday as they lose in Denver 24-17. And then tonight you have Tennessee-Houston, like I mentioned. It was a huge game when it comes to seeding right now in the AFC, and I'll get to that in a second. Your buys, which are the last buys, the last go-around, Thankfully, so now you're going to have a full slate of games from here on out, was the Chiefs and Rams. And just real quick on the game last week, I'm not going to get into all the minutia about it, but if anybody loved that 54-51 contest, was it entertaining? Yes, but that's not football. I'm sorry, people. That it was a joke of a game between all those points. And Granted, the Rams had points on turnovers twice, so it wasn't all an offensive output from both teams. But still, 105 points in a game, uh, that, that was arena football. Forget about NFL football. But, yeah, I don't like to see that. I understand the younger crowd, the younger generation, and the fantasy f- football crowd. Hey, fantasy football crowd, you won, hands down. But that was just a disgrace. And who knows we'll ever see a game like that again this year. But you, you get all these high-scoring games, and that's what the league wants. That's what the commissioner, everything. So that's just my two cents on that. So this week... Your slew of games, your Thursday night games we talked about, New Orleans-Dallas was a huge game. Then on Sunday, Denver-Cincinnati is a fascinating game from this standpoint. Denver now feels as if they could run the table because their schedule is easy the rest of the way. You know, they still have to play Oakland. They have Cleveland coming to their building, which that's not going to be an easy game for them. But it's a powder puff schedule. You know, they've already played Kansas City, so they're out of the mix Denver plays San Diego the final game of the year. Who knows if San Diego's going to need the game? They're in good position to make it to a wild card considering they're 8-3 and three right now. 
So Denver could actually, if they could run the table, they may be in the postseason. But guess what? They're still the Broncos. And it's still, to me, they're not that good of a team. Despite their last two games where they certainly got a gift from the gods last week against the Chargers when they were up 19-7 in the third quarter and they lost, and then winning yesterday. But then Cincinnati, their last stand. Is there any pride on that team? You know, losing five of the last six games. So to me, it's fascinating on that regard. Other than that, you got slim pickings. The Sunday night game's good with the Chargers and Steelers. The Monday night game is good now that Philly won yesterday with Washington and Philadelphia. This is the first time they're meeting all year. And is Washington going to have enough to go into Philly to win that game? Can they win that game? Maybe they can, but you would think now Philly has a little gas in their tank. And knowing that, you know, they're going to have to catch the Cowboys especially if the Cowboys lose on Thursday, they're going to look at that and say, hey, this is a golden opportunity for us to get this division back. So that's a fascinating game from that regard. Minnesota and New England is a good game. Other than that, that's it. Indy, Jacksonville, Carolina, Tampa, Cleveland, Houston, Kansas City at Oakland, San Francisco, Seattle, Arizona, Green Bay. Oh, these games are from hunger. Woo! So that's your NFL as far as your Week 13 schedule. And now to quickly go over through the divisions before we move on to other things. In the AFC, Kansas City at 9-2, one seed. New England now goes up to the two seed as of right now and will stay there because even if the Texans win, remember they have a tiebreak over the Texans from a win earlier this year. So if the Texans win tonight 8-3, and three, they'll still be in the three position. But if they lose and are 7-4, and four, Pittsburgh will leapfrog them to a three seed there in a the conference because they're 7-3-1. and one. They'll have the same amount of wins but one less loss. And then you round that off with the Chargers at 8-3 and three, and then the Ravens 6-5. and five. They have the tiebreaker over the Colts right now. I guess they have a better conference record. Yeah, 6-3 and three to the Colts 5-4. and four. And then you have Tennessee, Miami, Cincinnati, Denver all at 5-6 and six beneath them. And then the NFC... Saints and Rams are one and two, but of course the Saints are at the top with the tiebreaker that they had from their win earlier this year or just a few weeks ago against the Rams. Bears are eight and three. Cowboys six and five. And with the Vikings at six, four and one, and the Redskins at six and five, they round out the top six in the conference. And then you have Seattle, Carolina, six and five. Now I guess Washington must have, let's see. Well, there you have it. Washington with a 6-3 and three conference record. That trumps the 5-3 and three conference record in Seattle and 4-4 four and four Carolina. And then below that you have the Eagles at 5-6 and six, and then the Green Bay at 4-6-1 and one, where Green Bay, they're going to need a miracle and a half. And I get people could say, oh, well, you still have you know Aaron Rodgers. I didn't talk about the Green Bay-Minnesota game where Minnesota did win yesterday, but uh, I didn't watch the game, but there was a lot of talk about Aaron Rodgers making some bad throws. Certainly wasn't the Aaron Rodgers that everybody's accustomed to, but the Vikings uh, needed that game in the worst way because now at 6-4-1, and one, they have the tiebreaker over Green Bay if it does come down to that at the end of the year. Remember, they played each other earlier this season to a tie, so you have to keep that in mind. But uh, the NFC, going to be very interesting. Even the AFC. Because those teams are just separated by a game. You know, Dolphins, Bengals, Broncos with the Ravens and Colts. And then the NFC the same. So 
Fasten your seatbelts, everybody. Five more weeks to go in this NFL season, just what the NFL wants, and that's why the league is great, despite all of its uh, craziness. And a lot of it's died down this year, you know, no anthem stuff. And, I mean, you still have some off-the-field stuff with Reuben Foster, you know, getting cut yesterday morning because of uh, domestic assault at the team hotel. I jeez, you know, NFL can't get themselves out of their way when it comes to the PR stuff. But the league, hey. That's why it's great, because people watch, people tune in. It's once a week, and from week to week, there's another twist, another turn, another topsy-turvy NFL week. And even with the slate of games next week, there's always going to be one game that's going to make you just either shake your head or your eyes going to pop out of your head to say, wow, I did not see that coming. So that's the NFL for you here in 2018. All right, now on to college football. And all you could say about this past weekend was disappointment. Uh, some thrilling and riveting overtime down in Texas with Texas A&M and LSU and how this whole FBS College Bowl semifinal is going to unfold. First, we're going to start off with this Ohio State-Michigan game. And if you're Jim Harbaugh, and listen, it was a big, giant slice of humble pie. We talked about it last week. This was going to be D-Day for him. He has not beaten Ohio State. His team was ranked number one in the country defensively, and they were just embarrassed. They were undressed. It almost seemed like they weren't prepared to play. Now, we know that the Ohio State quarterback is good, and their offense is very good, but they were just not able to do anything against the Buckeyes to the tune of 62-39. I don't want to hear that the game was in o- at Ohio State. and No, this was Jim Harbaugh's time to shine here and for them to get into the mix as far as winning a national title. And that's not going to happen. What could you say? I was hoping that Michigan would win. Not that I have any interest or any dog in the fight, per se. But when you look at everything that led up to this game, and knowing that this defense, if they would have just showed up, not to say they would have won the game automatically, but I'm sure it would have been a lot more closer than the final score indicated. Just to, to... Deplorable job. I mean, there's, there's no other way to cut it. And now Ohio State is back in the mix as far as the national title is concerned. And for those who are sweating there in the early second quarter in Southern California, if you're a Notre Dame Fighting Irish fan, well, they did respond. And thankfully they did because I had my worries from this standpoint. We know USC is awful this year. They're under 500, obviously going nowhere. But they do play Notre Dame well, especially in that building. And you've seen it time and time and time again over the years how even an underwhelming USC team somehow, someway looks at that game as their national championship game. Well, certainly started off that way, didn't finish that way, although Notre Dame hung on to win 24-17. But after being down 10 nothing, they scored 24 unanswered. And then USC tacked on a late touchdown to make it 24-17. And away you go. So ND's going to be in the mix. And then that game and. I tell you, when I saw 74-72 seven overtimes, I thought to myself, what in the world? But the biggest play, when you think about it, was the play there at the end where the Texas A&M quarterback went down on the knee after the snap, and college rules, once the player's down on the knee, the play's dead. So even though he picked up the ball, tried to make a play, was intercepted at midfield, and everybody thought the game was over. They even had a Gatorade bath 
thinking that it was over. Well, guess what? That coach had to stand on the sideline for LSU and had to endure seven overtimes before he can get to the locker room and then to add insult to injury to end up losing the game because Texas A&M tied it on a touchdown and went for two and got it. And there's your ball game. 74-72 was the final. So, uh, listen, that's... I guess that's one for the ages. We know LSU has had a rough stretch here. You know, getting shut up by Alabama at home, and then now to have this happen to them. I mean, what could you say? But uh, obviously a fascinating game there if you were into that sort of thing to know that it went seven overtimes. And again, we can't get crazy. Oh, this overtime system, it's college. What are you going to do? It's not the NFL. There's no way they're going to change it. And this type of game happens once every zillion years. So for those out there thinking that this is an embarrassment to have them go through seven overtimes, then of course you're not paying attention. But now the big thing is, is when you're looking at the crystal ball as far as what's going to take place this weekend, well, here are the games you need to take a look at. Well, we know about the SEC Championship, Alabama-Georgia, Clemson and Pittsburgh there in the ACC, the Big 12 with Northwestern and Ohio State, and then you have Texas and Oklahoma. I know the one team that's going to get knocked out here is the – UCF, where the kid, Mackenzie Milton, suffered that gruesome knee injury, which is a shame because we all know they were having a big year. And a lot of people, I'm sure they would even argue for UCF to know that, hey, if this team has been undefeated and they actually have a shot to play for a national title, that even with this kid on the shelf and not playing for the remainder of this year, they're going to say that, hey, we have a say, we should be up there. Well, as we all know, just like TCU a few years ago, there is no way that this team was even going to sniff a national championship. And I understand that that may sound a little insensitive. I know that may sound like it's unfair, whatever, but come on, you're going up against the Oklahomans, the Ohio States of the world. You know, nobody's going to look at UCF and say, oh, well, yeah, I think they belong in a semifinal of a national championship scenario. And that's not to knock the school, that's not to knock the conference, none of that. But you would think that Although the supporters of that school in that region, they're going to say, hey, we have just as much of a shot to get there. Well, yeah, based on their record and what they've done, but come on. When you go through the competition and who they've played, it's a whole other story to what Ohio State's played or Oklahoma's played. And Oklahoma, who lost to Texas earlier this year, well, guess what? They're going to face each other again for the conference championship. All I'm going to say is this, even if Georgia, and and here's the big thing about this weekend, is Georgia needs to beat Alabama to have any type of possibility of upending what's going to be a controversial finish here for these Final Four teams. Because how I look at it, even if Georgia wins and beats Alabama, Alabama's probably going to get the fourth seed. It's Alabama. I know... If Ohio State wins or Oklahoma wins, they're going to say, oh, it's automatic. And I guess, again, I know they're Ohio State. I know they're Oklahoma. We're talking Alabama. You think that they're going to knock Nick Saban out to next week? Remember, keep this in mind, people. Last year, they didn't even make it to the conference championship, Alabama, if you recall. I believe they lost to Auburn late last year. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, they lost to Auburn. Was it 26-14, one of those scores? And a lot of people thought, oh, so they're not in a conference championship. 
Oh, they're going to not make it to the Final Four. What happened? They made it to the Final Four and they won a national title. So you mean to tell me that if they go ahead and lose a conference championship that they're not going to be in the Final Four? When they didn't even play in a conference championship a year ago? Not happening, people. I'd be shocked. And please, if there's one person on the planet that doesn't want to see Alabama there in the Final Four, it's me. Because I can't stand looking at Nick Saban's face. Bad enough. But even if Georgia were to win, now, of course, if Georgia wins, they're in. ND's in. Now, Clemson, Pittsburgh, if Clemson loses, I could see Clemson going out and maybe Oklahoma, Ohio State going in. But if it's chalk, other than Georgia winning, uh, well, what could you say? I mean, that's it. I mean, if obviously if Alabama wins, then your argument's going to be Oklahoma or Ohio State. Or if both of those lose, would UCF make it in there? I don't see both of them losing. Can Ohio State lose to Northwestern? Listen, we all know anything's possible, but you would think that by chalk and just by rote that they're going to make it to the, they're going to win these games and win their conference championship and then see where the chips fall where they may. But as much as I hope Georgia wins, I could see it's going to be Bama, Clemson, Notre Dame, and who's going to get that fourth spot? Like I said, if Georgia wins, and Georgia's going to be in, they'll probably be ranked one overall, followed by Clemson, ND, or maybe Clemson's one, and then you have ND two. I don't think ND would be two. I would think maybe Georgia would be one or two. And then you'll see what happens from there. But I think no matter what Alabama does, they're in. And if Georgia loses, then it's either Oklahoma or Ohio State, and I would think it would probably be Ohio State because their schedule is harder. And I understand you got to go through the whole FBS and how that, you know, what's going to spit out as far as, you know, the rankings are concerned. But how I look at it is until if Georgia loses, then let the debate begin. But to me, there's going to be no debate if Alabama loses. They're going to be in. So... We'll see. That Saturday f- football is going to be very interesting, very fascinating to see how this uh, all comes to play. And we'll be back here next Monday to discuss it. So uh, stay tuned to see uh, how the college football season technically is going to end. We all know the Bulls and the championship games is down the road. But as far as the college football regular season, it's sure it's going to be riveting. And to see how it uh, all shakes down will certainly be one to discuss come next Monday on the podcast. All right, now to turn our attention to baseball. That's right. Before I get to the NBA and NHL, I figured I'd get a little bit in a warm and fuzzy mood when it comes to some of this free agency and some of the transactions that are taking place early on. And although not much has been brought to the forefront as far as the free agency is concerned, the Yankees did make a deal last week when they brought James Paxton from the Seattle Mariners for Justice Sheffield. And two other prospects. The other prospects are no big deal. Obviously, Justice Sheffield is the prize when it comes to this trade. And if you're the Yankees, this is uh, something that you certainly have to be pleased. This is a guy that's 30 years old, does not have a lot of miles on his arm, although he has been hit with the injury bug over the years. But certainly, it's a guy that is not 30 and on the downside of 30. You know, it's not as if he's Clayton Kershaw when he's pitched, you know, 2,200 some odd innings in his career. And his best days are behind him. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that James Paxton, right away, he's going to be here for another 10 years. But you get what I mean when you have a guy that's in the middle of his prime, has a good arm, 
Last year, pitched a no-hitter. Certainly effective. Averages more than a strikeout an inning. And will be a formidable force in the middle of that rotation behind Tanaka, Severino, etc. And this is a move that you would think is one of many when it comes to the Yankees. You would think another pitcher will probably be in the mix, whether that means they sign Patrick Corbin, which has been all the rage as far as the Yankees picking up a free agent pitcher is concerned and how much he's been a Yankee fan his whole you know his whole life, Corbin, and his ties locally uh, being not too far from the uh, five boroughs. But when you're looking at this free agency and all the talk, whether it's Bryce Harper or Manny Machado, and in particular Machado, it's an absolute joke that the Yankees would certainly look at this as an avenue to improve their team. Now, do we know the type of talent Manny Machado is? Absolutely. It's just a matter of what cost, A, and B, do you really need this guy? Do you need another right-handed, power-hitting position player in your lineup? I say no. And I'm not saying that because of sour grapes or because the team across town is not going to do anything and certainly not going to pursue Manny Machado. But the point of the matter is is that if you bring Machado onto this team as it's currently constructed, with him, Judge, Sanchez, if you want to say Luke Voigt, to, if he's going to start the year, if he's going to have that much of an impressive spring training that he's going to be part of the mix as far as their right-handed power goes, and then Machado, hey, give me a break. You know, you do need some lefty power in that lineup, and we get it that Didi's going to be out with the Tommy John surgery, so he's probably not going to be back till July, August. So you figure, well, hey, we could bring in Machado. He'll play short until Didi comes back and we move him to third. All right, then what are you going to do with Andujar? And I even forgot Andujar in the mix as far as right-handed power is concerned, and, of course, Gleyber Torres. So could you imagine you're going to have six right-handed bats that it's going to be a modern-day murderer's row, but where's the balance on the lineup? And we get that there's also a lot of other rumors being put out there. Does that mean Stanton could go in a trade to L.A. in particular? Because the only other trade that he'll probably accept, since he does have a no trade, would be to go to L.A. It's not going to be San Francisco. Because remember, last year, the Cardinals and Giants were in play for Stanton, but he turned both of them down. Now, I'm sure if he were to move to the West Coast, again, that's Northern California, would he even take a deal like that? Probably not, because the Giants aren't going to go anywhere in the near future. The team's gotten old. From what I've read, their farm system isn't up to snuff, and why would he even go there at this stage of his career? Granted that he's got his money in Stanton, but for that, he would just stay here unless he were to go to L.A., because as we've seen time and time again, despite the fact they're not winning a World Series the last two years, but they've been in the playoffs the last six years, why would that change in 2019? But to bring in Manny Machado, and I know a lot of Yankee fans, most of them are not on board with this. They want pitching. I would think Bryce Harper makes more sense only because he's a left-handed, a left-handed bat in that ballpark. Now, granted, I understand where you're going to fit him because you just bring brought back Gardner for another year. You have Hicks for one more year. We know about Judge. You have Clint Frazier in the minors. And, oh, yeah, lest we forget, Jacoby Ellsbury's still on the team for two more years. And he has a no-trade contract or no-trade clause on his contract. So I get Harper bringing him here makes zero sense considering the plethora of outfielders that you have and you really have to make a ton of deals in order to bring him in here. But why bring in another right-handed bat despite the fact that it may make sense to the Yankee hierarchy to bring him in 
considering that Didi is going to be out for half a year. But you know with Machado, it's going to be minimum 10 years and at least $300 million. One thing that's going to be fascinating from this standpoint, if these guys do not sign, let's just say by January 15th, I'll go as far as the 15th, because then you're going to be a month out from spring training, a month out from where players will report, will Manny Machado or Bryce Harper take a two-year deal at, let's say, anywhere between 50 to $60 million. Almost kind of like a Kevin Durant type of situation where you sign for that two-year deal. By the time that contract's up, you're going to be 28 years old and you're still going to get an enormous payday, you would think, as far as years are concerned. But if nothing happens between now and then, you got to sign somewhere. You know, you can't be one of those guys that a month out until you report that you're going to just sit on the shelf and say, oh, hey, I'm Andy Machado. I'll get a deal no matter what. Well, okay, well, what about happens if February 14th rolls around and you still haven't signed a deal and you're waiting for that seven, eight, nine, ten year deal and it just doesn't come? Well, you would think that, hey, sign a two-year deal. Obviously, less years, you're going to probably average the same amount. Let's say if it's two years, $60 million. And we understand that what do these guys have to prove? We know the back of the baseball card. We know the type of talent those two in particular have. But it certainly would help them get their money now. I understand no security, and we get we don't know what's going to happen as far as their health is concerned over the next two years, but they will be 28 when they go into free agency again. It's a little unprecedented. You don't really hear about that in baseball with guys of this magnitude, but it's just something to keep in mind if these negotiations drag out deep into the winter. Now, the GM meetings aren't until the week after next. So I'm sure that week you're going to hear all the buzz about them and a lot of rumors about where they're going to go. But just to think that the Yankees are in this Machado mix, it's, uh, come on. I just think it's unnecessary. And I understand people may say to Jay Reels, well, hey, they're just trying to get better. Well, how much more better can they be? Especially when they have plenty of right-handed power in the lineup. And most Yankee fans that I've talked to, they didn't even want Machado here. Bring me the pitcher. And I'm sure, not that this would ever happen, but you get my point. If I propose to the Yankee fan, would you rather have Manny Machado or Noah Syndergaard, or dare I even say Jacob deGrom, if I were to pull 10 Yankee fans, I would guarantee that the the overwhelming majority would be for the pitcher. Because they know that if they get that guy in the mix, then it's lights out. Because their team, as we know, the positions, they're already stacked, locked, and loaded. That's all I'm saying in reference to what most Yankee fans feel. But, you know, you want Machado under your Christmas tree this year, then, hey, so be it. But we all know it's timely hitting and pitching, pitching, pitching as far as the postseason is concerned. And we know that's all it's about in the Bronx. It's not about winning 100 games or slugging 200,000 home runs in a regular season. It's about getting that brass ring. It doesn't matter what you do in the regular season. It's all about the postseason. So, Also, Adrian Beltre retiring after 21 years, and kudos to him. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. We get it, 3,000 hits, but the gold gloves. More of an underappreciated. I don't want to say he was a superstar player. He wasn't. But here's a guy 
21 years. They came in at 19, so you know he was going to compile as long as he was healthy. And sure enough, he has built a Hall of Fame resume over that career, which spans mostly with his days in Seattle and Texas. And early on, of course, L.A. before he became a free agent and went to Seattle. Remember, he played in the Red Sox for one year. But he had a phenomenal career, and kudos to him. I'm sure in five years from now, Cooperstown will be calling, and away we go there. But that's it with the baseball. I'm not going to get into all the little rumors that you hear. I know with the Mets, you hear that Syndergaard could be a guy that may go to a place like San Diego, per se, because they have a bunch of prospects. No way they're going to trade Fernando Tatis Jr. here. And I would think that if you're Brody Van Wagenen, that's the first name that you're going to bring up. And if they say no, you hang up the phone. Now, I'm not trying to say that Syndergaard's won multiple Cy Youngs and has been his dominant self ever since that 2015 and 16 seasons. But at the same time, you certainly can't give up on a guy who has three more years of eligibility before he becomes a free agent. And we understand that there's still potential there considering he hasn't had full seasons in 17 and 18. But if you're looking to win now and you're not going to bring back either position players or stud prospects, and if you ask me, I'd rather have a position player. Bring me that guy now. I don't want potential. I don't want to have your number one ranked prospect. And I get it that with the Yankees, it panned out with Gleyber Torres. Now, but again, it's one year. We still don't know how this is all going to shake down. But at the same time, give me the position player over the prospect if I'm giving up a guy like Syndergaard. So that's with the baseball there. And definitely once we get a couple weeks down the road, things will certainly start to heat up with the hot stove. And I'm sure you're going to get rumors abound, especially with those two players. I'm sure you're going to hear a lot of other stuff, and trades will probably be made during the course of those few days. I don't even know where they're at. Maybe in Arizona. Who knows? But uh, certainly keep an eye on that when the time comes. Now to wrap up here quickly, as far as the basketball is concerned, when David Fisdale came out last week and made that announcement about we're here, it's not about the win-loss record. It's about progress. And you hear that a lot in this day and age. You know, you want progress. It's not about the record. Well, At the end of the day, it's about your record. And yes, we want progress at the same time, but nobody wants progress. Or how can you expect any type of big-time progress when your record is 4-14? and Well, it's a thing. Since then, they won three in a row. So who knows? Maybe that's helped to some degree, but we all know that's going to be temporary. But give him credit. And Fisdale went to his old barn yesterday down in Memphis where supposedly he and Marcus Gasol had buried the hatchet. But the Knicks have uh, been playing well. Beat Boston... Up in Boston the night before Thanksgiving. Had a big win against Anthony Davis and company on Friday. And here they are, 7-14. Not to expect much from them, but hey, they've starting to put it together with those young players and the coach. And we'll see if the uh, progress continues because I'm sure the win-loss record certainly won't improve much more than it is now. And the Nets were uh, stumbling, rumbling, fumbling a little bit. Losers of three in a row, including a just a killer loss last night. Jimmy Butler with less than a second to go with a dagger three. In fact, with Butler, he's actually back-to-back games have hit game-winning shots. And the Sixers have played well ever since he's been a part of the 76ers. So, definitely got to look at that down the road. Weeks to come, especially in NBA. Other stuff, I know Golden State is right in the ship here too. They 
had lost five of six, and then they won their last two. How about the Clippers, though, leading the West? Now, is that going to be short-lived? Probably. Well, give them credit for them blowing up their team and knowing that they hadn't won anything with the Chris Paul, DeAndre Jordan, Blake Griffins of the world, and here they are now 13-6 and six, pretty much with, for all intents and purposes, role players. And then you had the Pop-Kawhi deal go on where uh, Pop said Kawhi wasn't a leader. And then Kawhi answered back that, you know, they thought those comments were funny to him and stated his case that, oh, you know, I led there. I'm a quiet guy. But, you know, he showed up, did what he had to do. We understand that when he was playing there, it was toward the back end of the Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker triumvirate. And he just laid low in the weeds. But at the same time, his work ethic and everything else had shown that he was a leader. Now, I don't know what happened last year with the injuries and all the rumors and how that took place, but certainly didn't look good for Leonard's part. You know, not accompanying the team to road trips, being at Dodger games right right before the playoffs, things of that nature. But hey, you know, Pop did uh, go on to say that, you know, he was a great player for us, but certainly wasn't a leader. And, you know, there may be some truth to that. I don't know. From afar, I would think that he's right. But for those who get into that NBA insider what's going on there. I mean, there you have it between Papa and Kawhi. I don't think there's any hard feelings, what have you. And we all know that he did well under Popovich there in San Antonio, and he's doing a fine job now where he's at in Toronto. So that's what you have there with the NBA. Other than that, you know, nothing really much else to report. As far as the NHL is concerned, you know, Islanders have bounced back after losing a couple games early in the week. Rangers, on the other end, they start off the week hot and they had two losses where they got shut out in Philly after shutting out the Islanders for the first time in forever because the Islanders had won eight straight against them, surprisingly. And then they lose to the Capitals on Saturday. Devils are certainly have not played well. They're scuffling, just trying to get themselves back after a pretty good start. And then today, Ron Hextall, for those who... Remember him from his days as a Flyer player back in the 80s. He was ousted as GM of the Flyers today. I don't even know who the replacement is or if there's an interim as of yet. But, uh, I mean, I don't know, last week I came on the air and they only had, what was it? They had no fighting majors. Now they have two, I believe. And in reading this earlier, remember Paul Holmgren is the VP of Hockey Operations. And we all know Paul Holmgren was a tough guy in his days, especially when he was with the Flyers. Now... Part of the reason why that he was gone, because Hextall, who had brought in his own people, the last coach after they fired Barubi was a guy that supposedly had coached his son at North Dakota. But one of the things, there was a perception that they had this team, the way it was built by Hextall, that it wasn't tough enough. And they even say, like, when was the last time a Flyers team had two majors or two major penalties to 23 games in a season. And that's what I love, because if that's the case, if the Bobby Clark and Paul Holmgren have looked at this team as not being tough or not being flyer-like, and kudos to them. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to revamp this team and it's going to be circa 1975 or even circa 1987. But if they know that they need to incorporate some toughness here and they don't like what they see, and part of it is Hextall, and Hextall, as we all know, he was a very feisty, emotional, 
player himself for a goalie. But he gets shown the door, and rightfully so, because if that's the case, if he didn't want this team to be tough or whatever his thought process or his philosophy was, well, they got him out of there. So that's, the, I guess, the shocking news today. Other than that, what he got with the NHL. And then lastly, for those out there who were thinking, especially Stephen A. Smith, were thinking that Duke, after their annihilation of Kentucky on that first game, well, that went out the window. And, of course, he's going to say, oh, hey, Gonzaga, now they rank number one as they leapfrog Kansas in the AP Top 25 men's college basketball rankings. For Stephen A. after one game to say that this team's going to go unbeaten was the most preposterous thing anybody could ever say on the face of the planet. And they lose to Gonzaga. They lose by two. And, of course, I didn't hear what Stephen A. probably didn't say anything about it. I understand there's a lot more to talk about, a lot more important things to talk about in sports than the Duke Blue Devils. But, please, that was just an asinine comment. And nowhere, even after that, whatever it was, 118 to 84 shellacking of the Wildcats, that I even think that Duke was going to go undefeated. Now, we know Zion Williamson is probably going to be the top overall pick in the NBA for 2019. But just them losing, whatever, three or four games into the season is actually comical to think that if anybody out there thought after that first game they were going to run the table and go undefeated, please. Uh, obviously, you just don't watch enough sports. And I understand Stephen A. watches sports, and he gets paid for his opinions, but that one is just ludicrous. All right, people, with that being said, that caps off another Episode 40, that is, of the J Reels Podcast. I truly appreciate you taking the time out to listen to me, listen to what I have to say, download, share with your friends, etc. And, of course, you know where to go to get the latest and greatest of these podcasts. If you just go ahead and subscribe, whether it's Apple Podcasts on your iPhone, Google Podcasts on your Samsung Galaxy, whatever it may be, or your Android, I should say. Uh, very simple, people. All you have to do is just type in the J Reels Podcast, hit subscribe, and every Monday you'll get these podcasts directly to your phone, tablet, whatever device that you may use. Of course, you can go to the website at www.jreels.com. Of course, that's J-A-Y-R-E-E-L-Z to get the latest. Still working on the website there. Keep in mind, uh, on social media, I'll certainly update it as we go along. Also trying to do a couple other things in the works, which I'll share in the weeks to come because nothing's final as of yet. So I certainly don't want to tip my hand, Lord knows. Early on in these podcasts I have, and I want to make sure until it's definite and official, then I'll go ahead and uh, broadcast it. Check me out on my social media accounts, whether it's J Reels on Instagram, J Reels 1, just the number on Twitter, and the J Reels podcast on Facebook. Well, that's my Facebook page. And then, obviously, you could send me a DM, inbox me on any of those sites, as well as the J Reels podcast at gmail.com for any questions, comments, criticism, praise on the program. Uh, And again, it goes without saying, people, that I appreciate everything you do, whether it's sharing it with other people, listening, supporting it, and also, please, post a rating, leave a review when you do so on your phone. It just takes a matter of seconds. Literally, uh, do I have to post a video on my social media accounts to actually show you how quick it is just to subscribe and leave a review or post a rating? Uh, Who knows? I actually may do that. But you get where I'm going, people. Just continue to uh, go ahead and support it, and I'll be here to deliver. Each and every week, everything that's going on in the world of sports, whether it's the diamond, the ice, the hardwood, the golf course, race, track, tennis court, you name it, here on the J. Rules Podcast each and every week. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J. Rules Podcast, 
on the flip, baby. <laughs>